You know, I was really struck um, by the truth that we were going over today in our worship. That restatement of truth, that restatement of God having come and met with us, not leaving us on our own, not leaving us in our sin, but coming and reaching out to us. And that, that important thing, which I come back to again and again and again, I haven't got to feel it for it to be true. Truth is that thing that is there, whether I feel it or not, it's true. And that important point um, of our thankfulness, our testimony, that um, from a point of thankfulness, we take flight. We lose touch with our earthbound selves and our situation as we recognise God with us, Emmanuel. Then in praise, we talk only of him, not of us. And our worship becomes an offering, our living sacrifice. That powerful thing that, you see that whole thing, that I'm, I'm thanking God for what he's done. That's part of the first thing. I'm thanking God for what he's done. I'm already starting to turn away from myself and look to him. And then I'm moving up and then I'm making declarations about who God is. Yeah? And then I'm coming to a place, I just want to worship you, I want to give myself to you and that kind of thing. That's a powerful and exciting thing. And I think, for me, um, it sits under what we're going to be talking about uh, today. Oh, I've just remembered. I'm going to put myself on stopwatch. So it's a technique that has been suggested to me <laughs> by, people who, by people who have listened before. Um, there we go, see how that goes. That's nice big numbers. I don't have to use my glasses for that, see. Right, okay. I was reading uh, a little while ago um, some of the interactions with Jesus after he rose again. And uh, he's walking along the road uh, uh, to Emmaus with these guys. And, and at one point it says, it's Luke 24, verse 8, really short verse. There's only five words. It says, then they remembered his words. Then they remembered his words. That's like a hyperlink to everything, isn't it? You click on that and poof, then they remembered those three years of walking with Jesus, those three years of his, then they remembered his word, that testimony, that hearing him, that thing. And I want for that to happen to us all the time, that then we remember our words. Now that there was nothing to do with what I'm speaking about directly. Good, right. So I did put on Facebook that um, if you've got your Bibles, you need to put your finger in First Corinthians and in uh, uh, Jeremiah. I hope to get to those and look at those a bit today. Since uh, Mike and Penny Stevens have been with us, I've just had this reoccurring desire to go back to that key phrase that Jesus used about himself. He said, I want only to do what the Father does. And I keep coming back to that again. What does it mean to do only what the Father does? And I keep coming back. It's kind of stripping away all me, all my preference, all the things I see, all the influences I have and that kind of thing. I want to only do what the Father gives me to do. And I keep coming back to that as being a key phrase. I think of that touching down, particularly when Jesus went and, and healed the lame man at the Pool of Bethesda. If you remember the story, there's a Pool of Bethesda is this place that it was said that the angels stirred the water and if you got into the water first, you were healed. So there would have been hundreds of people just laying there looking, you know, to, and he went up to this guy and says, you know, what do you want? I want to be healed, but there's no one to help me in the pool. And, and then he healed him, okay? But we only hear that he healed one. That means he must have, according to what's written, now some people say, well, we don't know what else he did. But I, I kind of feel that if he did more, we'd hear more. So he went up and healed one person and walked past a bunch of other people. 
It's not very compassionate. It doesn't even seem very logical. But if I then roll in that filter, he only did what the Father gave him to do, I realise, wow. He didn't do what would be seen to be right by everyone else. He didn't do what was seen to be right by the religious people. So, you know, from our perspective, I didn't just do what people in church felt I should do. I didn't just do what people in the world felt I should do. He did only what the saw the Father do. That's a powerful place to be. Pretty unpopular place to be as well, I think, and I think that's key. So that's kind of been resounding in my head a little bit. I want us to have a little look today at um, the state of culture that we live in, the state of our world, um, and I'm going to use a couple of uh, media clips. Now, they worked really well for me. They might not work for you, but I will enjoy them, okay? Um, and if you think of your faces, if you give me a confused look, it will mean I'll explain it. If you give me your normal look, I'll just assume that you're, you know, bored. <laughs> I, last time I spoke, I spoke at a predominantly Nigerian church. They were a lot more into responsiveness, yes, until I got going, and then they went to sleep even quicker than you lot. So, <laughs> so I just had to say hallelujah every now and again. Everyone woke up. It was great. Um, I, I had some time... Um, with some MPs in recent times, and we've been looking at that verse about the men of Issachar. It's in, I think, First Chronicles. And it says that men of Issachar knew the times and the seasons. And, and it's great to know the times and the seasons. It's great to know what's going on. But there's a second part of the verse that people don't tend to say. It says, the men of Issachar knew the times and the seasons and what to do. It's all very well knowing the times and seasons, but we want to know what to do. And I'm asking God for that bit. I want to know. I'd almost have less knowledge of times and seasons if I knew more what to do. And that's kind of where I'm coming in. Let's have a little look. Um, that's, well, first we'll have a little listen, if we can. This, I'm going to chop the clip up twice. Um, just to warn you, it's from a podcast called This Cultural Moment. Um, there is a uh, West Coast uh, um, uh, chap speaking. He's got a very light and lovely accent from the west coast of America, and there's an Australian. I have to suppress my gag reflex as I listen to them. So get yourself ready for that. That's key. I know there are Americans amongst us, but we won't hold that against them. Right, so let's see. Ready? Let's see, let's see. Click that button. Because in the state of Victoria, which is where I'm from, you need to have, when you build a new extension on your home, you need to have a water tank because we have drought problems. So just extended my home and we had to get a water tank alongside. Now that's a reservoir. In a system there is reservoirs and you have an input which is the rain comes off the roof, goes into the tank and you have an output which is the hose which we can water my garden with. And our lives are like that. We have reserves in our life. Uh, as humans we need certain reserves to be healthy and happy and flourish. We need meaning. We need to feel that, that, that what we're doing is important. Viktor Frankl, in his famous book, Man's Search for Meaning, discovered that people who survived in concentration camps were not the strongest or the most well-fed or the most muscular. It was the people who had a sense of meaning which kept them going. So every human needs a sense of meaning, that they're part of a story which gives parameters and gives a sense of significance to their mm -hmm. lives. Which often so shows up as tradition yeah. or religion or culture. Yeah, totally. 
Uh, we also need a sense of relationality, of communality, of community, of people who love us at various different levels. Uh, Joseph Myers has a book on the different levels of community we need, whether that's that intimate, just very close, we need with people who deeply love us, to just neighbours, like, hey, how are you doing, to being part of a sporting team where you're sitting there and you don't know everyone in the stadium, but you're wearing your city's colours or your country's mm-hmm. colours. Humans need those levels of community. We need freedom. We need freedom uh, to be able to do what we feel as individuals called to do and not be completely controlled by outside forces where we have no inner life. Now, what's really interesting is that we in the West have those reserves, but one is completely overflowing. And the input we have is just into one tank, and that's the tank of freedom. Hmm. So So you're saying three tanks, meaning, community, community and freedom yes and the tank in the west that's overflowing is freedom yeah okay nice little summary there so this this sense that we need these three buckets or tanks or reservoirs or reservoirs as he said um so one's freedom one's meaning or purpose and the other is uh is community or relationship now let's zip forward if we can See if this works, otherwise you'll get some really strange bits. Ready? Yes. So we have an overflowing sense of freedom. And as I said, freedom's good, but our tank is overflowing. That is, is, it's bursting. Now, what that also means is that our tank of meaning is actually very low. There's a point where if you can just choose anything, I can go to... Um, it's different if I say to you, here's this book, John Mark, you've got to read it. This is an incredible book. Read this book here. Versus you then walking to Powell's and going, well, there's 10 bazillion books here. And you're two hours later, you're there and you feel anxious and you still haven't chosen a title because you're right. trying to pick between and I do. I feel that every, I'm yes. there every week. I feel a little bit of anxiety because I want to read it all and which one exactly. do I pick? And there's only so many hours in a day. It's choice anxiety. So... What is a really interesting dynamic that very few people in the West have understood, and this is crucial to understand Christianity, is to have a sense of meaning, to also have a reservoir of relationality and community with humans and with God, you need to actually limit your tank of overflowing freedom. Hmm. So you're saying there has to be a balance between freedom, community, and meaning. Yes. And in the overall American system... The freedom tank is overflowing. The meaning tank is bone dry. And that has been the general critique of secularism from not just Christians, but all sorts of people, that it has little to no meaning to offer. The evolutionary worldview, it's chance, it's social Darwinism, it's a glorious accident, and there's no overarching meaning or purpose to life in general other than feel good, be happy, have sex, buy stuff go on vacation, whatever the thing is. Exactly. And anxiety is the canary in the coal mine to say that so much freedom and a lack of meaning. You be- okay. So three, three buckets. And he's talking about a particular setting that we have more and more freedom. That's the thing that's it's about individual choice or radical individualism. And the, the result of that is we don't get meaning, we don't get community. You can't have freedom and have a relationship. It doesn't work. You can't have total freedom and have a relationship. He talks uh, later on about a book, a, a fancy book. It's a, it, the term they use is a, is a woke book. Has anyone come across the term woke? Any of you trendy people? No? I think it means it awakens something in you. 
there you go. And it's got this wonderful story about this clash of African culture and black American culture and all that kind of thing. And it's all about identity and finding yourself. And in the end, the guy runs off to have an affair. He deserts his family, deserts his wife and children. He deserts to find his true self in the affair with his childhood sweetheart. That's the pinnacle of the book. And it's that kind of thing of that this, this thing will eat itself. And that freedom that people pursue, the freedom to choose and that, and that kind of thing will, will cause a problem in itself. And actually, if we overflow on one, we'll get a problem with others. Interesting, he talks about that anxiety. Now, they use the example of a bookshop. I'm sure it's quite common for you guys going into bookshops all the time. Do I get the second-hand copy? Do I get the hardback? I mean, all, all you guys, you're so bookish. Um, so that maybe that doesn't work. And I think this whole thing about... Um, Radical individualism, this whole freedom tank overflowing, leads to a number of different things. It leads to anxiety. There's no parameters. We don't know what to do. It leads to loneliness. That makes sense. It's interesting if the government's looking at. It leads to purposelessness or, or lack of meaning. And I believe it leads to soulishness. And we're going to look a bit about soulishness today. But, just as I promised, all... Before we do that, now, now if you're going to be well behaved, and if there's a number of people I can see have already napped off, right, give them a nudge, because now we're going to watch something on TV. I know how you like TV, right? This is a special treat. And this is kind of a, just a little snippet of the example if you, take, if you take the thing too far. Right, are we ready? Now, there is one part where a man uses a bad word. I'm going to try and cough at the right point, so you don't have to hear that, right? <clears throat> He's the one that looks like my father-in-law. Okay. She's gone too far this time, Mummy. What next? We'll catch her trying on my knickers. Don't say knickers in front of your father. He can't cope. I can't cope. She wants a pair of knickers between cousins. Less of the knickers. I won't put up with it anymore. Teenagers have rights now, you know. We're ridiculous. They do, ma. It's true. Sure, Macaulay Coco might be divorcing his parents. Do you hear this? This will be someone she met at that stupid summer scheme you insisted we sent her on. A bloody friends across the barricades thing. I have nothing against Protestants. I'm all for integration, I am. But if they're letting their Wayans divorce them... Macaulay Cogan isn't a Protestant, ma. It's only going to give our Wayans ideas. Well, you might be. But I didn't need him at friends across the parking. I don't care where you met him. You're not to see him again, understood? Fine. You look at this. The bomb in the bridge, apparently. No. Suspicions were raised when a hijacked man... Oh, dear God, no. Does this mean they can't get to school? I've had a whole summer of it, Jerry. She's melting my head. Sure, their bus can go the long way around. I'll get it. Major traffic disruptions are anticipated. Then we shouldn't have to take the bus to school. You should be driving them. You useless <coughs> shit. I have to work, Joe. Work? Is that what you call it? Yes. Why don't you just leave my Mary alone? Because we've been married for 17 years, Joe. We have two children. And because we're in love with each other. Oh, fuck. I find some dirt in you yet, boy. I've got people working on it. God, Mama, you're up early. So are you. You should be having a lie in love you on your holidays. First day of term, Sarah. Is it I? It is I. Oh. Well, I don't know about the rest of you, but I'm not enjoying this bomb. Shocking. Desperate. Disgusting and disgraceful. I have an appointment in Tropicana at 12, 15 minutes in the stand-up, but sure, I'll not get over the bridge at this rate. It's going to play havoc with my build-up. This is what they want. They want ordinary people to suffer. 
This is what it's all about. I'm pretty sure interfering with your sunbed sessions isn't very high up on anyone's political agenda, Aunt Sarah. I wouldn't be so sure. We better head. Hey, what do you think you're playing at? Where's your blazer? I've decided to put my own spin on the uniform this year. I'll spin you across that floor. Get your blazer on. Look, Mommy, I'm not a clone. I should be allowed to express my individuality. I'm sorry, I'm not wearing my blazer. End of story. Jerry, pass me the wooden spoon. What's all this? I thought we were going to be individuals this year. Look, I wanted to clear, but my mom wouldn't let me. Well, I'm not being an individual on my own. Okay, grand, grand. Okay, I'm not being an individual my own. Um, lots of great bits there. I realised that actually you all needed like translation things there, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. So um, that's that's like a um, that's Christmas Day at the Patterson household. Uh, from my experience, that's like my in-laws. Um, so you've got all these different views, and it's 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 a very it's a very good show if you can cope with the language a little bit. Um, and uh, you've got all these people looking at this, this thing. There's a bomb going off, and it's, you know, this is going to interfere with my sunbed session. That's why they want. They want to interfere. Everything comes down to me. It's just like, points back to me. And, uh, and it's also interesting, and the emphasis on individualism, it means that everything starts looking the same, and I think that's quite interesting in itself. So radical individualism, or the worldly way, leaves us with a deficit in community and meaning. And uh, let's have a look, quick look at Jeremiah. So if you've got your Bibles, we're not going to go there necessarily on the screen because I'm going to whip us along. But Jeremiah uh, 2 talks about this. I think it describes, partly gives a picture of the way things are and the way we can be. Um, it says in verse, uh, sorry, chapter 2, verse 13, it says, My people have committed a double evil. They've abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. It's interesting, that thing about going out on your own means you detach yourself from God and his ways. They've dug their own wells, and they're not very, not very good. In fact, at verse 11, it talks about, yet my people have exchanged their glory for useless idols. They've left one thing and gone for another. And I think we see that thing with a world that kind of rejects God and goes its own way. In fact, later on, uh, it gives another picture which I think describes quite well the way we are. Oh, I can put my glasses on. That'd be helpful. Here we go. Uh, verse 24, it says, it's like a wild donkey. Uh, she sniffs around. She cannot control her passions. And I think that whole sense of being led by passions is a good picture of, of where we are in terms of um, society in that sense. And then let's whip over to Jeremiah 50. And look at some of that there. Verse 50, verse, uh, where am I? Verse 4. Talks about coming back to God. In those days and at that time, this is the Lord's declaration. The Israelites and Judeans will come together, weeping as they come, and will seek the Lord their God. They will ask about Zion, turning their faces uh, to the road. Or in other versions, it says, turning towards Zion, and that being a key. 
thing itself. It reminds me of that whole thing about turning towards Zion, about that whole thing about a heart set on pilgrimage. But let's look first of all, let's jump actually to verse 6. My people were lost sheep. Their shepherds led them astray, guiding them the wrong way in the mountains. They wandered from mountain to hill. They forgot their resting place. I thought that was a really interesting place. It kind of comes back to that whole thing about, you know, pursue your own thing and you, you lose those boundaries. And then verse 7 kicks off, whoever found them devoured them. I think we can say that we have a culture and a way of being that is devouring people, that is causing people to, to be lost, not have a place of rest. I think um, when we look at uh, our young people, um, those going off to university and that kind of thing, I, I have a concern about the culture devouring them. And, and, being, you know, and because there are not good shepherds out there, but what does a shepherd do? He guides. He gives lead. You can't have total freedom and have a shepherd. You have to give up some of that freedom to get that meaning and that community. There's, there's no way around it. You can't have it all. You've got to have a balance in it. The... So then, as I said earlier, it comes to this thing of soulishness. And soulishness, I've looked up, it's at Sylvia here. Sylvia, I've been looking up the Greek. And for once, normally I go and look up the Bible verse and it says heart and you look it all the way up and it says heart and you do all this study for a period of time but this time it gave me lots of different words so if you turn with me I'm whipping around a bit I know to 1 Corinthians uh, 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14 and this one we'll look at in the message in fact this is where the term soulishness is used and I've been thinking about soulishness for a while and I thought it wasn't in the Bible then I found it it says in the message, the unspiritual self, well, that's the term it translates of, as soulishness, just as it is by nature, can't receive the gifts of God's spirit. There's no capacity for them. They seem like so much silliness. Spirit can be known only by spirit. God's spirit and our spirit in open communion, spiritually alive, we have access to everything God's Spirit is doing and can't be judged by unspiritual critics. It goes on. Another verse, version says, the person without spirit or the natural person does not receive the things of the Spirit. So the word soulishness, and, the, and it's fascinating, every version tries to tangle with it. Sometimes it says unspiritual, sometimes it says person without spirit, sometimes it says natural. But the word soulishness here, or that, that word is surhikus. Surhikus. I got the pronunciation written down. Surhikus. Can you say that? Surhikus. 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 Come on. Surhikus. Surhikus. You didn't do very well with how a couple of weeks ago. We need to work on that. Surhikus. Surhikus. Yes, if you woke up some of the people sleeping, it would be good as well. You can wake them up. Right, it means fleshly, it means animal, it means not spiritual, it means emotional, it means sensitive. It's a whole thing of soulishness. They can't receive the gifts of God because their self is getting in the way. Their self is getting in the way. It's interesting, it also says, to them, God's word and God's gifts are silliness or foolishness. Previously in Corinthians, Paul was saying, um, not many of you are wise in the eyes of the world. He also says, my preaching is foolishness, something for us always to bear in mind. But he says there's, there's foolishness, and to the world, God's way looks like foolishness. It came, comes up again and again, because the logic doesn't work. There's a completely different logic. The logic of this world is for freedom, and this is no restrictive freedom. So it's key there. So foolishness... Um, 
So what does soulishness look like? What does it look like for us in Lifeline? What does it look like for the church? Well, it's to do the feeding of self. I would even stretch it to the idolatry of our emotion. And let me be clear with you, I'm not saying this to you, I'm saying it to us. I've been wrestling and looking, where is this happening in me? You know, as I watched the Christmas film last night and shed a little tear, not because I've never seen the film, because I've seen it a million times before, and I find I get more teary when I know what's going to happen. Go figure that. As Crump, Crump, Crank, Christmas with a Crank. Does anyone know that one? Oh, well, you should see that one. So right, tearjerker. As he gives up his cruise to the grumpy man across... I'm, I'm tearing up. I'm thinking, is that, you know, the fact, I, the fact I keep going back to the film may be my soulishness. But this whole thing, how do, what does it look like? It can appear good. Remember that thing about Jesus, the Paul of Bethesda? You could do the thing that appears right. It can appear good, but it's always self-reflecting. Jamie, um, in the teaching on Esther, talked about pride, and he talked about us inserting ourselves into the stories. He talked about um, a number of things. I thought, oh, yeah, that's that. That doesn't, I, I do that. I insert myself to the story. You know, even serving can be soulish. Even serving, doing the right thing, I can serve and it can be soulish for a number of reasons. It can be because we think it will make us look good. We may not, it's even subconscious. It may be because we've always done it. Right? It may be because we think it's expected of us or that's our role, that kind of thing. But if it's not what God's got for us to do, it's just Good works without faith. Don't do anything. It's no good. It's rubbish. And I think there's something for us to think about there. I often think about Buddhists. Do you know, I find more and more stuff out about Buddhists all the time. You think, oh, Buddhists, surely, surely God will save Buddhists. They're so good. But you see, if their motivation of their good works is trying to earn some kind of salvation, that's the opposite of the logic that we have in God. I think if you're Rohingya at the moment, you may not be thinking that Buddhists are good. And we see that that human nature, that, that, that thing that kind of creates those problems. So even serving, even doing something that looks good can be soulishness. I think there are situations, I was observing one in a, in a group, someone talked about a problem or a need, and everyone in our group jumped in to help them. Oh, why don't you try this? Why don't you try to do that? I think there, there are different ways that it plays out. When we, when we respond to the need in the person and just, oh, let me fix it, I think that's, that's soulish from our point of view. And sometimes the blurbing out the need is soulishness in the other person. And so we have to say, what is God giving us to do? Soul Survivor last year, I think I've told you guys this before, there was a time where um, Mike Pill have actually called uh, a response and lots of young people came up to respond and God was really doing some amazing things and there was tears and there was snot and there was all kind of stuff going on. And he said, let God minister to those people. Don't hug them. Don't slobber over them. They need God, they don't need your slobbers. It's very common and from my time of working with young people, it's really easy. You see someone crying, you want to stop them crying. But what if God's doing something and you want to step back and let God be God and let him do his thing and join in with it, not take over? We are not the solution. Yeah? Rhodey and I spend quite a lot of time um, talking with different um, organisations that are trying to influence healthcare. And there's a whole section of, of groups that call, are called user groups. 
They represent users. They represent people who are themselves ill. They can be expert um, patients and things like this. And every time we have any kind of discussion about voices into shaping policy, the user group says, oh, but what's the voice of the user here? In fact, actually, the normal representative is a German guy, so it's, it really helps us. So we need users. We need more users. And we need the voice of the users to be supported for the using. You know, so it's all going. And the thing is, I think hearing from people who are suffering is very important. It gives good perspective. However, if I'm laid out having heart surgery, I don't want someone else there with his knife or whatever saying, I'll do it because I've had heart surgery myself. I would like to have the doctor fix me. Uh, it's nice that you can slobble on me with all of the experience you've been through. In fact, in mental health, we're hearing that one of the issues is that someone suffering from depression, their experience is quite different from someone else suffering from depression. If you assume that that person is going to help you, they potentially try to force you into their avenue of experience. So sometimes that empathy can be misplaced. So that can happen amongst us. And the problem is that there's self at the centre. There's not an emphasis on God. There's an emphasis on me. And I think we all have to look and examine and think, is, there, is what am I doing? Is, that, am I, is it over-sentimental? Is it feelings-led? Am I letting my emotions extend? Um, because in the end, we want God. We want his way. So, what is the antidote to this? Well, it kind of comes down to that common thing. It's about surrendering and repenting. It's looking at that freedom bucket that's overflowing and seeking to give up some of that freedom. The restoration of the good shepherd in our lives. Having restrictions and submission. Submission doesn't come from above. It comes from below. It's my choice to submit. And that's key. It comes out of us. In Jeremiah 50, if we go back there again, it's another section well, the section we started with. They will seek the Lord. They will ask, sorry, they weeping as they come and seek the Lord. So there is that thing of repentance there. And they will ask about Zion. They will turn their face to it. So it's turning our face, turning our awareness, doing only what the Father. So what do we do? Firstly, let's not pitchfork us. Yeah? I, think, I think this is so pervasive in our culture that self in the midst of it is so pervasive. It's to do with taste. I like this. I like this style. I like this way of doing things. I like this. I like, you know, I don't like coming at 10.25. I want to come at 10.30 or whatever, or 10 o'clock as it would be soon. I, you know, how much stuff is about I want to do this or I don't want to, yeah? That is to do with all of us, I believe. I think we need to ask the question, God, what's on your agenda for my development and my character? And here's a key thing. Don't hide behind personality. Well, my personality is this. It's not character, it's personality. Rubbish. Rubbish. If God's got something for you, if the people around you who love you are seeking to help you see something, oh, you know, I'm a quiet person, or I'm a loud person, or I have no filter, or I do have lots of filters, or whatever. Yeah? It's not personality, it's character we want to be sorted. So there's repentance, and I believe there's accountability. If we got led astray by bad shepherds, if we got led to a place where we were devoured, it's because we weren't with a good shepherd. 
and we weren't putting ourselves where we needed to be. And I think that call and that, that uh, encouragement to, uh, for us to be accountable, for us to be in discipleship relationships are very key. It helps set us. It helps us be uh, restricted in a right way. So I expect that if I got a great speaking, speaking slot in some secular setting, a TED talk, this would not go down very well because it's completely against the spirit of the age. But spirit of the age is leading to death. Yeah? It's leading to all kinds of mucked up situations because people have too much freedom. Now, if we're in other parts of the world, we can talk about the problem of not having freedom, but that's not our situation here. It's about restrictions, those kind of things. So, my call today is to search yourself. Ask God to search you. See if there's any unclean way in you. And ask God, let me, let me know what's on your agenda. Let me know how I should be restricting my freedom for your sake so I might be in line with what you're doing.